Hey, podcast listeners. I'm really excited to announce a guest episode today from the podcast known as The History of Sex by fellow history podcaster B.T. Newberg. The podcast covers the sexual history that is expansive and inclusive of all genders and sexualities throughout human history. I'm personally a huge fan of what he does, and I encourage everyone to listen and to subscribe to his podcast. The episode today that I'm featuring is called, Were There Gays in the Nazi Ranks? Sex in the Third Reich. BT does an excellent job exploring modern queer German history and how it relates to society and politics during this time. He elucidates how the rise of Nazism impacted queer and homosexual communities and the presence of gay Nazi figures during the era of Hitler. While the idea of a gay Nazi sounds like an oxymoron, it actually wasn't. But I'm going to let BT take over from here since he does such an excellent job doing so. I know you're going to love this episode. When I was in college, I had a friend named Mark, and he told me that once in his home state of Missouri, someone had tried to run him down with a truck because he was gay. They literally tried to hit him vigilante style with a truck. That's not the sort of thing that you expect to happen anymore today, especially not as we move into the 2020s now, not as we have legalized gay marriage, not as we have openly homosexual Congress people for crying out loud. And yet violence against LGBTQ people remains prominent even today, being the third most common hate crime after race and religion, according to an FBI study from 2007. It does make you wonder what it would take for a seemingly progressive country like the United States, or pretty much any nation in the Western world, to make a 180 and have all that progress lost. Because that is precisely what happened in Germany in the 1930s. One of the most homophobic regimes in history was that of the Third Reich. And yet, in its early years, it was surprisingly lenient on gays. In fact, in 1934, the second most powerful man in the Nazi party, second only to Hitler himself, was gay. Ernst Röhm, leader of the brown-shirted stormtroopers, was gay. And I don't mean latently homosexual, like some kind of repressed urge making him all the more homophobic or something. No, I mean openly gay, or as close to open as you could come in a society of the 1930s. He didn't come right out and say it, but everybody knew it. His enemies, his friends, even Hitler. And there he was, the second most powerful man in the Third Reich. Nor was he alone. There were many others like him who felt, as absurd as it may sound, like it just might be their Reich. Now, that situation did not last. By the end, Germany had become their worst nightmare. So I'm not trying to pretend the Nazis were somehow secretly Rainbow Rangers or something. Not by a long shot. The Third Reich went from quite possibly a place where alternative sexualities could thrive to the worst catastrophe that could have befallen them. How does that happen? How does a nation flip like that, seemingly overnight? What was it like to be queer in Germany at the time that Hitler came to power? And could we, even today, see a resurgence of homophobia on that level? That's what we're talking about on today's Deep Dive episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Folks, this month's episode will form the conclusion to our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. By the end of this month, we'll have no less than 16 episodes in total, looking from all different perspectives at sex and gender in Germany in the period leading up to and including the Second World War. And if I'm not mistaken, that's more in-depth than any other documentary project in the audiovisual medium on this topic. You won't find this on the History Channel or anywhere else. So if you've been skipping around, now would be a good time to go back and binge the series straight through from beginning to end Netflix style so that you can join us this month in our conclusion to Sex in the Third Reich. All right, with no further ado, let's begin. Die, 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 die,
On the eve before Hitler's rise to power in 1933, there had never been a more exciting time to be gay. Germany had seen the development of homosexuality as an orientation, the establishment of the world's first institute for sexuality, the organization of gay bars and clubs, and a campaign to change the sodomy law to make consent the only relevant factor that the law need concern itself when it came to sex between adults. Unfortunately, the morning after Hitler's rise to power would usher in a time when it was never more frightening to be gay. While it was not a holocaust on the scale of what happened to Jews, it was bad enough. By the end of World War II, some 100,000 were arrested and at least 5 to 15,000 of them found their fates in concentration camps where gays were among the most abused of all inmates. The death rate for them could be as high as 60%. And worse yet, many were used as lab rats in mad scientist experiments aimed at discovering a so-called cure for homosexuality. And yet, at the very top of the Nazi party, there was homosexual Ernst Röhm. He was the leader of the Sturmabteilung, or SA, that's the brown-shirted stormtroopers that were the strong arm of the party in its early years. And under his direction, the stormtroopers intimidated political rivals, brawled in the streets against communists, strikebreakers, and other opponents, including Jews. So let it be clear, this man was no hero. He was just as reprehensibly Nazi as anyone else. But we're not here to talk about heroes today. We're here to find out how it could be that a homosexual could find his way to the highest echelons of a party like this. And the short answer is through ruthless efficiency. The rest of this episode will be the long answer, but that's the short answer. Ruthless efficiency. Rome's stormtroopers got the job done time and time again, doing the dirty work that catapulted Hitler to the top of the political system. And Hitler knew he was gay, too. They were close friends. In fact, Rome was the only one who could call Hitler by his first name, and the only one allowed to use the familiar form du instead of the more formal sie when addressing him in the second person in German. So Hitler knew him well, and Rom made no great secret of his sexuality. He didn't go around shouting it from the rooftops, but he didn't exactly hide it either. He was a member of the Society for Human Rights, which was the largest gay organization in Weimar, Germany. He called for reform to the sodomy law. He argued that homosexuals should accept themselves for who they are. And he even rooted his own personal philosophy in his sexuality. In a memoir in 1928, Rome wrote, The struggle against the cant, deceit, and hypocrisy of today's society must begin with what is most basic in life, that is, the sexual urges. If this struggle is successful, only then will it be possible to rip the masks off the illusions of all of life's social and legal arrangements. So, Rom was not exactly secretive about his love for other men. On the contrary, it formed the bedrock of his worldview. For Rom, the great promise of National Socialism was a revolution against the way things had been, and a new kind of integrity found in courage, discipline, and fraternity among men, and anti-Semitism, let's not forget that part. But anyway, for Rom, this was the future. The experiences that he and others like him had in the trenches of World War I had stripped away all that was inessential, and in its wake, he wrote, only the real, the true, the masculine held its value. His was a philosophy of hyper-masculinity, which defied traditional stereotypes of homosexuals as feminine, much as today that's what they thought of them at that time. Now, Rome didn't go around in feather boas and makeup. That was more the style of Luftwaffe commander Hermann Goering, but that's a story for another time. No, Rom was not the flaming type. In fact, he was quite the opposite. While he did have a bit of a bear bod, in all other ways he seemed straight as a ruler, broad-shouldered, bull-necked, and war-scarred. In another era, he could have been cast as Rambo. Journalist Conrad Haydn describes him. Three times wounded in the war, he returned each time to the front, 
Half his nose was shot away. He had a bullet hole in his cheek, short, stocky, shot to tatters, and patched. He was the outward image of a freebooter captain. As a war veteran and comrade par excellence, Ernst Röhm may as well have been the poster boy for the National Socialist Movement. That is, if not for his choice of sexual partners. Because even in its early years, the party had expressed some homophobic sentiments, but it was also ambiguous, and soon something would happen that would suggest that maybe it was less homophobic than it seemed. In 1931, Rome was dragged through the mud by opponents. Although his sexuality had always been a bit of an open secret, opponents at this time found it politically useful to put it front and center as Nazis began running for higher offices. And so the social democratic newspaper, the Münchener Post, published a number of his letters supposedly containing homosexually themed communications. Now in the ensuing interrogations, Rome twice admitted to bisexuality, perhaps adding the bi part to temper the appearance of things somehow, though no female lovers of his are known to this date so far as I am aware. In any case, the Social Democrats made much of this scandal to discredit the Nazi party. Now, it's odd that it would be the Social Democrats of all people who did this, because they were actually in favor of repealing the sodomy law. But the scandal, so far as they were concerned, was not that Rom was gay, but rather that an avowed anti-gay party like the Nazis had such a man in their own ranks. It was the hypocrisy of it. That was scandalous, according to them. Now, in response to all of this, what do you suppose that Hitler did? He could have cut ties with Rome, distanced himself from him, or denied the veracity of the letters. There's any number of ways that he could have cut Rome loose. But that's not what he did. Instead, he stood by his longtime friend and ally, telling the press that one's sexuality was one's own affair. <laughs> that's... Not what you would expect from a guy like Hitler, and not from the Nazi party either. That must have made many in Germany wonder if perhaps its previous anti-gay statements were not just mere lip service to homophobic norms of the time, whereas the truth of the party might be something else entirely. Surprisingly, the party weathered the scandal without significant damage and came out looking all the more promising for young men of Rome's persuasion. For he was not the only one. Another high leader in the party ranks was Edmund Hines, the stormtrooper's deputy commander. Like Rome, he had stood shoulder to shoulder with Hitler in the Beer Hall Putsch, which was an early bid to seize power. And also like Rome, he was among those implicated in the letters published by the Social Democratic newspaper. And after the scandal, he also remained at his post unscathed, just like Rome. Another like them was Karl Ernst, head of the stormtroopers in Berlin, and yet another was the governor of Silesia, Helmuth Bruckner, whom we will hear more from later. All these officials provided further evidence that the party just might be more bark than bite when it came to its anti-gay policies. So, how prevalent was it then in the party? How prevalent was homosexuality within the Nazi party? Well, it's difficult to say. Rom, Heinz, Ernst, and Bruckner are among the few historically verifiable cases because of the public outings by newspapers and courts. But the first three were actually mutual lovers. So it makes you wonder how many more were there beyond these few? Well, historian Geoffrey Giles uses arrest reports to give us at least a vague idea. In the city of Leipzig alone, four SS men arrested for homosexual offenses in 1937 and 1938—57% 57 of those arrested in Dusseldorf on such charges during the Third Reich belonged to one or another Nazi organization—in 1940, 16 cases of homosexuality were brought before the internal SS courts. So these numbers of arrests hint that there were more than just a few men at the top who loved other men. Now, more precise numbers than this are a bit difficult to ascertain. Case numbers are highly misleading. I mean, there were plenty of false accusations. Well, at the same time, many legitimate discoveries within the party may have just been dealt with off the books to avoid party embarrassment. And a very large segment likely remained hidden 
burying their true selves beneath layers of salutes and Heil Hitlers, but with a wink-wink beneath it all. So we may never know the true prevalence of alternative sexualities within the ranks of the Nazis themselves. And there have even been hypotheses that Hitler himself was gay. Now, scholars largely dismiss this idea, and I have looked at the evidence. It's extremely flimsy indeed. And there's also some weird homophobia behind some of the books promoting this idea, which I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. However, it does seem to be true that Hitler was relatively blasé about the whole idea of homosexuality. His opinion on gays was nothing even close to the vitriol that he spewed against Jews. Far more rabidly homophobic was the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, whom we'll hear about later in this episode. But Hitler was kind of meh about it. Now, is that because he himself was gay? No, I doubt it. But it may have been because he was a close friend of Rome, and he knew that, well, in his opinion, the guy was all right. Maybe? It's difficult to say. What we can say is that despite what you might think, many young men attracted to other men actually saw promise in the Nazi party in the early years. I mean, after all, of all the political parties in Weimar Germany, the only one with known homosexuals in its leadership was the Nazis. And despite the party's stated policy, the fact that Ernst Röhm and Edmund Heinz and others stood tall among their leaders, well, it gave many hope. Perhaps they suspected the policy on gays was mere political pandering, while actual implementation would be lenient. Or perhaps they thought that Rome would eventually win over the other leaders in the party to a less homophobic stance. Or maybe they felt at minimum that Rome would protect them. In any case, an unknown number did march under the banner of the swastika. Okay, so sure, maybe there were some homosexuals among the Nazis. After all, it only stands to reason, given what we know about human nature, that there will always be variety in sexual preferences in any community. It's never a question of does it go on, but only of how secretive must those individuals be. But what's still puzzling is why these individuals apparently didn't have to be that secret at all. What was going on in Germany at the time that made it possible for someone like Röhm or Heinz to be all but openly homosexual, even within the most radically conservative party of the time. How gay-friendly was Berlin in those days, and how did it come to be that by the end of the war it had flipped to being one of the most lethally homophobic places in the world? Well, we're going to find out. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Hey folks, I want to tell you about a great podcast called Into the Portal. It's dedicated to researching the unknown, unexplained, and straight-up strange. Whether it's ancient lost cities, encounters with paranormal phenomena, or anything within the realm of the bizarre, it shares these mysteries with the world. I really enjoyed their episode on the Sea Peoples, mysterious invaders of the ancient Mediterranean who may have caused an early Bronze Age collapse, they also have an episode on the Antikythera device, said to be the world's first computer, but which was built in ancient Rome. They have stuff on Jewish golems, Mongolian deathworms, and a whole lot more. Check it all out on Into the Portal. And now, the History of Sex presents this. <laughs> This week on Berliner Hills 90210, Adolf runs for class president. But now he has to choose between friendship and body. Hey, Addy. And power. Oh my god, are you gonna vote for Adolf, whose best friend is gay? And along the way, he learns something about himself. Everyone, I have learned something about myself. It doesn't matter what your friends do, only who they are. And Ernst is a good man and a good friend. But friendship is not all that it seems. Hey, Addy. Addy. Hey, what? You walk right past me now? You've been acting all weird lately, ever since you became chancellor. It's just... Now I've got all these popular friends and... Oh, I see what this is. I'm not good enough for you, right? No, it's just... See you around. 
Ugh. Looks like Ernst and Adolf have a lot to work out. Don't miss the next drama-filled episode of Berliner Hills 90210. All right, we're back. So the question is, what in the world was going on in Germany at the time such that people like Rome could go around pretty much openly gay, not just surviving but thriving within the most radically conservative and avowedly anti-gay party in Germany? In order to answer that, we'll have to go back and get a deeper historical context for homosexuality in Germany from the Renaissance up through the early 20th century. Although things had never been great for homosexuals, they had been gradually getting better for centuries. While the Holy Roman Empire had since 1532 consigned men who love men and women who love women to burning at the stake for sodomy, Prussian reforms of 1794 reduced the punishment for sex between men to imprisonment up to four years and ignored sex between women altogether. Upon unification in 1871, the German Empire reduced the act to a mere misdemeanor punishable with only six months in jail, and again, women who loved other women were left out of the legal language. Now, there was a bit of zeal against homosexuals during the tensions of the 1880s when the rise of socialism whipped up a conservative backlash against deviants of all kinds, and male-male lovers kind of got caught in the mix there. But by the early 20th century, things had relaxed again, and although the six-month jail sentence remained on the books, it was rarely enforced. Sex between men had basically become an unenforced crime, and Prussia gained a reputation as a safe haven, and its capital of Berlin came to be known as the gay capital of Europe. Now, the stereotype of gays at this time was much as today. Historian Stefan Mitchler describes the caricature as soft, effeminate, and unable to exert the control over physical urges that was necessary to uphold civil society. In other words, this exaggerated perception of gays that was present at the time amidst the public was not just a matter of sexual partner, but also of gender presentation. Gays not only had sex with other men, but also presented outwardly as feminine rather than masculine. This will become important later when we return to the hypermasculinity of Ernst Röhm. But first, there's more to tell of late 19th and early 20th century developments, because times were a-changing. Germany had seen the rise of the notion of homosexuality as more than just an act, but an orientation. That is to say, while almost universally across cultures and across history, Gay sex had been seen as something you did, not something that defined your nature as a person. That was beginning to change. The very term homosexual actually came into existence at this time amidst German-speaking peoples. From there, German psychologist Magnus Hirschfeld, who was himself a lover of other men, developed this new notion of the homosexual into an orientation. Basically, he medicalized it as a psychological condition. Now, I know that may not sound like much of a step forward, but it was intended as such. It established homosexuality as something inherent to one's nature, no longer a culpable act, but rather something that you can't help because it's who you are. And I do realize that from a modern perspective, that still probably sounds a little bit off, but, you know... It was another time, and baby steps, baby steps. This was how it all got rolling. Suffice to say, things were changing for the better. In 1897, this same Magnus Hirschfeld also founded what is now recognized as the first LGBTQ rights organization in history, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which campaigned to repeal the sodomy law, which was called Paragraph 175, Hirschfeld also would later go on to found the Institute for Sexual Research, also the first institution of its kind, which investigated sexual difference of all varieties 
and issued a kind of passport for transgendered individuals so that police would not harass them on suspicion of being prostitutes. Basically saying, I'm not committing a crime, I'm not exploiting anyone, this is who I am. In addition, it performed the first gender confirmation surgery for one Dora Richter, and it provided employment as well. It was one of the only places in Germany, in fact, where individuals of alternative sexualities could be employed without having to hide who they were. In short, Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries had become one of the most forward-thinking places in the world when it came to alternative sexualities. And that was the state of things as storm clouds began to gather over Europe in 1914 and the Great War began. In the trenches of World War I, Men crowded next to other men, anxious and desperate, with nary a female to be found. And as weeks dragged into months and months into years, they found ways to cope. And two ways that they did that were the homosocial and the homoerotic, which were not entirely separable from each other. The homosocial refers to male bonding, but without any sexual implications about it. It was platonic. The trenches were a shared experience of intense trauma which welded men together on a level hitherto unprecedented in German society. The loyalty and the intimacy between these men would be remembered for the rest of their lives, forming bonds that passed beyond words. But that wasn't all. There was also the homoerotic, which did include a sexual dimension. When the war finally ended in 1918, many men found themselves changed. Some had discovered something about themselves and explored their gender and sexual preferences further under the new Weimar Republic, while others went the opposite route, longing for a return to that deep homosocial male bonding of the trenches, while at the same time harshly rejecting any actual homoerotic funny business. But as I said, the two could not be separated that easily, and so, when veterans began forming themselves into the militia units called Freikorps and then into the early Nazis, the new movement absorbed both of these elements. So the homosocial and the homoerotic mingled together from the very start, rarely acknowledged but there nonetheless. And each soldier had a slightly different perception and different hope, perhaps, of what the movement would become. And so even as anti-gay policies began to appear within the party, it was not yet clear that this was anything more than the same lip service that had always been paid to heteronormativity. Many saw a place for the homoerotic within the homosocial. Ernst Röhm was one of those men. And those like him who had discovered themselves in the trenches did not necessarily see a conflict in joining a party like the Nazis. They were used to living with contradiction, used to the wink-wink of hidden desire, used to the double-think of saying one thing while believing another. That's often how existence was for people of alternative sexualities. When you live in a society that is hostile to who and what you are, you yourself may pay lip service to it on the surface, and others like you may do so too, but you have to read beneath that in order to find each other and that's what made this such a complex and nuanced situation. People of alternative sexualities were used to looking past what was said on the surface and paying attention to what was actually done, perhaps in the shadows. And to be honest, even on the surface, early Nazi policies were by no means clear about what their stance was. The party's first public statement relevant to homosexuality, which was issued in 1928, avoided explicitly naming the thing that it was supposedly condemning, thus leaving open the door of interpretation. The German folk can only live if it fights, because to live is to fight, and it can only fight if it keeps itself manly. It can only remain manly if it practices discipline above all in love. 
everything that unmans our folk makes it into the plaything of our enemies. Now notice that this policy says nothing about sex, only gender. It concerns itself with the manly. So someone like Rom, whose homoeroticism had not the slightest whiff of femininity about it, but was rather hyper-masculine, could read this kind of statement and say, yeah, that describes me. It describes me to the T. We can only fight if we keep manly. Check, I'm manlier than most. We can only remain manly if we practice discipline above all in love. Check, I'm more disciplined than most, especially in my love. Everything that unmans our folk makes it into the plaything of our enemies. Check. Bottom line, our choice of sexual partners is irrelevant so long as we behave manly. Fine. Done deal. We're good. I'm good. That's how Rom and people like Rom might have looked at a statement like this. It's ambiguous. And that is exactly the kind of ambiguity of interpretation that allowed so many to believe that maybe there was a place for them within the ranks of the Nazis. Strange as that may sound to us with the privilege of our hindsight. And such ambiguities persisted even when the true homophobia within the party started becoming more clear. When Hitler ascended office in 1933, he closed gay bars and banned gay clubs. And this seems pretty clearly homophobic. But even this could be seen as merely fulfilling a political promise to clean up Berlin. And maybe it said nothing of what the party would do in the future. Then, that same year, when students were whipped up into sacking and burning Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexuality, permanently closing its doors, this too could be explained away. I mean, after all, Hirschfeld was not just a homosexual, was he? No, he was also a Jew. Surely this was anti-Semitic, not anti-gay, or so many may have told themselves. Each rationalization of the party's actions requires greater and greater mental gymnastics, but it also commits a person deeper and deeper to the story they tell themselves. One man who fell deep, deep into such a story was Helmuth Bruckner, governor of Silesia, which is a province of Germany. Now, he would eventually be brought to court on charges of homosexuality, though, like Rom, he would claim to be bisexual. Now, what's interesting about Bruckner is that his defense seems to show a genuine disbelief that the party could possibly be anti-gay. First of all, he pointed to people like Rome and said, look, he's right there. How could any of this be against the party when there's this guy at the very top? Fair point. Now, as historian Joffrey Giles relates, for his part, he, meaning Bruckner, remained convinced that he had done nothing reprehensible. He had followed closely the signals apparently being issued by the party for many years. They had not seemed to differ from the practice of the courts, so that simply being a homosexual or engaging in certain kinds of homosexual acts appeared to be as acceptable in the party as in German society at large, especially during the Weimar Republic. Bruckner was probably not alone in thinking that the promotion of Ernst Röhm to the crucial position of Chief of Staff of the SA was a signal of, quote, unparalleled tolerance, unquote, on the part of the Nazi party toward homosexuals, even though he was mistaken here. Unparalleled tolerance? Those words sound patently absurd to us today, not being in Bruckner's shoes and enjoying nearly a century of hindsight on the matter. But to Bruckner at the time, and likely for many like him, this was what it was like to be gay within the Nazi party. The abundance of ambiguity, bolstered by hope and perhaps a healthy dose of self-deception, made it possible for many to believe that the party was or at least could be for them. Again, we have to remember that people of all varieties of non-normative sexual difference have often had to live with ambiguous messaging, ignoring surface-level phobias in order to find a place for themselves beneath the surface. Just fitting into a homophobic society may require that you yourself might have to make homophobic remarks in order to avoid suspicion. And so you learn to suspect such remarks and acts and try to find what's really being said beneath the surface. That is perhaps what Bruckner was doing, or at least seemed to be doing in his testimony here. Many others like him 
may have done precisely the same thing, interpreting the ambiguities of the party in a way that made it possible to believe that the party was not against them, but for them. Unfortunately, that game could not be sustained. Soon the clarion bell of homophobia would sound so clearly that there could be no misinterpretation. But by then, it was too late. On July 1st, 1934, Ernst Röhm was assassinated, and Edmund Hines too met his demise that night, as did many others, gay or otherwise. Bruckner was also targeted and ended up in the aforementioned trial from which his testimony comes. It was a party-wide purge that became known as the Night of the Long Dives. So why all of a sudden did the Nazis turn on their former comrades. These men had been staunch allies, fellows in arms who had stood shoulder to shoulder with the rest of them. Hitler himself had defended Rome when he was dragged through the mud by the papers, and they were close personal friends. So why, after all of that, would he betray them in so final a fashion? Post-purge statements by Hitler alluded to their sexuality as motive for their deaths, but that was not actually the reason for the betrayal. Rather, it was political, and their homosexuality only served as a convenient justification for the killings. See, Rome and his brown shirts had become a bit of a liability. While Hitler could never have risen to power without them, once he was in power, he no longer needed them. They were unruly, disorganized thugs. It made his regime look illegitimate. They were hardly the sort of thing that looked official and proper as a state apparatus. Meanwhile, Rom thought that the German army should be absorbed into the stormtroopers under his command, and the stormtroopers would just become the legitimate army. And he became increasingly vocal about this opinion, which definitely rankled the feathers of the actual army leaders, not to mention the leader of the newly formed SS, Heinrich Himmler, was quickly gaining favor, and the SS and the stormtroopers were becoming rivals for Hitler's attention. So it was nigh inevitable that Hitler would have to make a choice between the SS and the stormtroopers. And in the end, what he chose, despite his friendship with Rome, despite everything that Rome had done for him and the party and Germany, Hitler chose the rising SS over the fading stormtroopers, and that was the end of the story. The fact that Rom had to die as a result of this was just an unfortunate byproduct of this cold political calculus. It had nothing to do with his sexuality. Yet the public relations opportunity presented by that sexuality was just too good to pass up. As justification for the murders, Rome's sexuality was placed front and center, more and more so as time went on. They accused him of packing the stormtroopers full of gays, showing favoritism for those who shared his orientation. And to clinch it, the regime further concocted a conspiracy supposedly led by Rome involving all of these gay officers loyal to him. It was a convenient political cover story. It was all too easy to justify the political murders as a pursuit of sexual purity, and so that is what was done. The murders themselves were not motivated by homophobia. However, their justification from then on opened the door to homophobia on a level hitherto unseen. The head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, walked through that open door, and he was well and truly homophobic to the core. As Giles describes, It was Himmler who set up a national police task force to combat homosexuality. It is Himmler who must be held responsible for the 90,000 arrests and charges of homosexuality that occurred in just the three-year period, 1937 to 1939, and the concentration camps all answered to Himmler. For Himmler, the repression of homosexuality was a near crusade because it was a crucial pillar of his larger ideological agenda. 
As discussed in the previous episode, the Nazi policy on sex was babies, 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 in order to breed soldiers to fight the next war and to ensure the survival of the Aryan race. So only what fit that vision was tolerated. All else had to be eradicated. And homosexuality, being non-procreative, certainly did not fit that vision. And this can be seen from the fact that the investigative office set up by Himmler in response concerned itself with not one, but two crimes, homosexual sex and abortion. Both of those went together like two peas in a pod for him because both were principally offenses against the birth rate of the race. That's how they saw it. And you know, by the way, perhaps that explains why Rom and Bruckner both curiously claimed bisexuality in public. It may have been a signal that they could still breed and thus fulfill their national duty. Unfortunately, in neither case did the defense work. The nation turned against non-heterosexual relations with a fury. Germany had come so far in progressive sexual values, but all that reversed in a heartbeat. In 1935, the sodomy law, paragraph 175, which had come so close to being repealed, was not repealed but strengthened by the Nazi regime, extending it to include not only the physical act itself, but virtually any behavior even remotely suggesting it. In short, it became a tool of terror for the Gestapo, the police. The program against same-sex relations nullified all the progress that had been made in gay rights in the last several centuries. Not only that, but it also revived the notion that sex with other men was a choice and not an orientation. If it was not an orientation but a choice, that meant anyone could be seduced with sufficient persuasion, and that, to Himmler, was a great danger. He hallucinated a Germany in which procreation all but ceased because all the young men were wasting their seed in unproductive ways, having been seduced by inveterate homosexuals. So this could not be allowed. And the repression that followed was cold and systematic, Giles describes it. A gigantic card index would keep track of suspects from all over Germany. Himmler wanted his policemen to inspect hotel registers for signs that two men had shared a double room, and to scan the daily newspapers for incriminating small ads. Every last suspect was to be brought in for questioning, and every suspect was to be detained, fingerprinted, and photographed, even if charges could not for the moment be brought. His home was to be searched for incriminating letters, and then the homes of the correspondents were to be searched as well. Now, of those who were thus detained, those who could be re-educated, quote-unquote, were subjected to intensive deprogramming, not unlike the Pray the Gay Away stuff that goes on today in some parts of the United States. There was no religious element for the Nazis, but the end goal was the same. They attempted to basically hile out the homo for anybody that they felt was curable. So how did they decide who was curable and who incurable? Historian Boaz Newman reports that. At the Goering Institute in Berlin, convicted homosexuals were forced to have sexual intercourse with prostitutes while researchers observed them. Those who succeeded in the task and achieved sexual gratification were released. Those who failed and showed themselves to be incurable were sent to a concentration camp. So, if he finished the job, he was deemed curable. If not, his fate was far worse. Those deemed beyond redemption, they had to be removed from society. Between five and 15,000 of them were sent to concentration camps where they were among the lowest on the totem pole among prisoners. They were forced to wear the pink triangle, a signifier which also designated rapists and pedophiles. They were singled out by guards for especially harsh treatment, and their chance of surviving the ordeal could be as low as 40%. Even worse, some were sent to medical labs for experiments in how to cure, quote-unquote, their condition. Such experiments included castration, as well as inserting an artificial testosterone gland it was kind of like a metal tube that was on a timed release that would go inside your groin. And the hypothesis was that low testosterone might cause homosexuality. 
newsflash, it doesn't. Other experiments that had nothing to do with altering their sexuality used them as mere lab rats, for example in the effort to develop immunization for typhus fever. Needless to say, many died in these laboratories or found themselves permanently damaged by these experiments. Now all of this was focused largely on male homosexuals. Females were for the most part ignored. There was a proposal to begin targeting women, supposedly because it would be too difficult to tell true lesbians from merely close friends. Now that strikes me as oddly charitable for the Nazis, who generally lost little sleep over wrongful convictions in any other case. I suspect, rather, that it was yet another manifestation of the phallocentrism so common in society, which basically ignores non-penetrative sex. I suspect they didn't really consider lesbian sex real sex. And in any case, there were wombs that could still be inseminated, whether they liked it or not. However, in the end, lesbians did suffer similar fates to their male counterparts, but for a different reason. They were targeted not on charges of homosexuality, but on charges of being antisocial. Now, how in the world you make a law against something as nebulous as antisociality is beyond me, but there it was, and women who loved other women were arrested under this law. They wore a black triangle instead of a pink one. And by the way, transgender individuals were also made to wear the black triangle of antisociality on the grounds that they were mentally ill, along with a whole gamut of others deemed socially misfit from prostitutes to beggars and alcoholics. Lesbians and transgender individuals were thus lumped into a broad category of social undesirables labeled antisocial, and thus suffered fates similar to male homosexuals in the end. The experiences of those who suffered for their sexualities under the Nazi regime remained hidden after the war, because, after all that, it still remained illegal to lie with someone of the same sex even after the end of the war, and so survivors were hesitant to tell their stories. It was really not until the 1970s that they started coming forward in any numbers. Now we have a much better picture of what it was really like to be queer in the Third Reich, but for a long time it was obscured, just as it was for those of non-normative persuasions in the early days of the party. In the end, how was it possible for someone like Ernst Röhm or Edmund Heinz or so many unnamed others to believe that there was a place for them in the ranks of the Nazis? Well, it was a combination of the forward progress that was made earlier, which seemed like it was too much, it couldn't be reversed. Plus, the ambiguity in early party policy, which allowed for multiple interpretations. And plus, the general comfort with contradictions that was inherent in living in a homophobic society where lip service had to be paid to heteronormativity, but other things could go on beneath the surface. All of that combined together to make it appear not that crazy that there could be a place for alternative sexualities to thrive within the Nazi party. In fact, it's conceivable that history might have played out quite differently had politics not gotten in the way with the Knight of the Long Knives. In an alternate universe where Hitler chooses the stormtroopers over the SS instead of the other way around, where Röhm and Heinz live and the rabid homophobe Himmler gets the axe instead, well, you can imagine a very different scenario playing itself out. Paragraph 175 might never have been strengthened, and perhaps it might even have been repealed. Some 100,000 arrests might have been avoided, and thousands may have escaped the camps. The ultimate fate of homosexuals in wartime Germany may have been quite different indeed. Of course, that alternate history universe would still have been a nightmare. I mean, they were still murderous, genocidal anti-Semites, after all, regardless of who they slept with. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there are no heroes in this story. But that's not the question. The question is, how could there ever be homosexuals in the highest ranks of a party like the Nazis? And the answer is, quite easily, as it turns out, for all the reasons already mentioned. And in the end, it tells us 
less about who's good, who's bad, or anything like that, and just more about the knife edge on which people of alternative sexualities in any community virtually always tend to live. Which brings us to today. With all the progress that we've made to date in the United States and across the Western world, could a reversal like this ever happen again? Have we reached a point where backsliding is just unthinkable, it could never happen? Or are we still delicately perched on that razor-sharp knife edge, waiting for something to topple us off? Even in times when it seems like the march of progress is inevitable, and full social acceptance is just around the corner, just as it did in Germany in the 1930s. A turn of fortune can still flip things upside down overnight. It happened in Germany. So can it still happen again today? Perhaps. Perhaps. Thanks for listening, folks. I hope you learned something today. I know I certainly did. If you like what we are doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a 19th century Prussian, proudly holding up a sign that says Gay Capital of Europe. Or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. Folks, for the rest of this month, we've got some short shorts episodes coming up to round out the series. We'll be taking a look at the question of cross-dressing in the German army, alternative sexual expression in the Weimar era, and much more. Stay tuned for that as we wrap up our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.